So today we move into the Advent season, continuing our messages and reflections over this past year and over the next coming months from the prophet Isaiah and God's messages to us and to his people over 700 years before Christ coming through the prophet Isaiah. Today's message is Christmas tree stump, shoot, root, and fruit. Christmas tree stump, shoot, root, and fruit. And we're going to be talking today at least about part one. We'll continue this in a couple weeks on December 12th. The old gospel of the Christmas tree, shoot, root, and fruit. I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas TV special. I watched it probably every year when I was growing up and have continued to turn back to the Charlie Brown Christmas program innumerable times seemingly uh, as my daughters grew up and even now that I'm empty nested, I still like to watch uh, that little whatever it is. It's not really long, 22 minutes of power-packed animation with an incredible message. You'll, some of you will remember the story. Charlie Brown is all depressed and upset. He kind of doesn't know exactly why, but he, know, he knows that Christmas season has grown by 1965 when this show was made way too commercial laden. He knows that. And he's, he's somehow in his soul and heart seeking the real meaning of Christmas. Which, by the way, it is a great evangelical and evangelistic show. Um, so anyway, Charlie's all upset, and, and he goes to see his psychiatrist, as we are prone to do in the modern and postmodern age. And his psychiatrist, Lucy, that excellent counselor, advises him that he needs to cheer up. It's Christmas time. Get with the flow, Charlie. And she says, I have something that may help you out. You can be the director of the play I'm going to be in, and I'm going to be queen of the play. So it's going to be excellent. You know Lucy, right? So Charlie takes on this role of being the director, but he shows up for the practice, and it's typical modern or postmodern America. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, playing their own songs, talking their own parts, uh, deciding they need to be the big cheese in the, in the play. And Charlie's all upset, and he calls everybody together, and Lucy suggests, well, here's what you could do, Charlie. We need a Christmas tree in this play anyway, so why don't you go buy a Christmas tree to try to bring some Christmas into this play that we're doing? She says they have some great new aluminum trees out there. You know, they're wonderful. And so Charlie goes off to find the tree, and they go by all these aluminum trees and flashy lights and Snoopy's doghouse all lit up with all kinds of lights and decorations and everything. And Charlie ends up, when he's looking for a Christmas tree, finding the one actual real Christmas tree that is available, only it's a little droopy sapling. You remember this, right? He gets this poor, pitiful little tree, and he picks it out, and Linus says, I'm not sure that's a, that's a good idea, Charlie, but Charlie is bound and determined. This is, this is how we're going to find Christmas, and he brings this little pitiful tree back, and you remember, he's a subject of ridicule, Charlie, as everybody laughs him out of the place. It's, it's crazy, and uh, Charlie is asking, what is Christmas about? And then we get an amazing scene. This is this is on public. This is on you know national TV, major broadcast, and then broadcast for years. Linus says, "I know what Christmas is about, Charlie. Let me tell you. 
and he starts quoting the first major segment from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the entire world should be taxed. And it goes all the way through Mary and Joseph coming to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, the Christ, and the angelic, you know, proclamation of who Jesus is, peace on earth, goodwill towards men on whom his favor rests. It goes all the way through that story. And then Linus says, taking his little blanket, Charlie, Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas really is. But things continue to go downhill. Charlie tries to, you know, uh, rectify and, and, and build up his little sapling tree, and he, he hangs an ornament uh, from Snoopy's display, and the ornament is, is heavy enough that the little tree just droops down and virtually is dead, and Charlie goes off totally discouraged. But then you may remember what happens is Linus comes and you know, tucks his beloved blanket around the tree, starts propping the tree up, starts decorating the tree. A lot of the children come. Even Lucy ends up caving at the end. She's helping decorate the tree. And they're humming uh, my favorite Christmas carol, certainly one of them, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. And all of a sudden, Charlie comes back and the tree is gorgeous. There is life in the midst of Christmas. There's truth, there's reality, realness and redemption and salvation, they're all in the midst of this show. And at the close of the show, yes, just like It's a Wonderful Life, they're singing, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, God has come to us. One note on that show, I didn't actually realize this, some of you may remember this, in the late 50s, this is classic, you know, TV age America, modern America. In the late 50s through the mid-60s, the big craze was to shift from real trees and even fake-looking real trees to aluminum Christmas trees. That was a big craze. I didn't realize that. You know, we're trying to go to the moon and everything else that was going on in the early 60s. So aluminum Christmas trees were top-selling until and through 1965. And when that Charlie Brown Christmas show came out, within two years, aluminum trees were passe. Nobody wanted an aluminum tree because it was realized that, you know what? You're not going to find real life and real Christmas with an aluminum Christmas tree, apparently. Isaiah chapter 11. We come to Isaiah chapter 11 today. Isaiah 11 prophesies, as we said, as I said, and as the Weisskopf shared with us, uh, the miracle and majesty of the Messiah's birth and his first coming. And then Isaiah 11, this is incredible, the sweep and the vision that God gives to and through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is not only looking at the first coming of Jesus at Christmas time, but also looking all the way through his death and resurrection to his second coming, when he will make indeed all things right, when he will bring the execution of God's judgment on earth uh, to condemn all that is evil and against God, but to redeem and to save all of us, all of us poor pitiful sinners, everyone who will turn to him in repentance, he will indeed judge unto deliverance, unto salvation, the poor and the meek. That's the message of Isaiah 11, and we're going to be turning to Isaiah 11 in just a moment, but let me remind you that there are three 
great messianic Christmas Advent-oriented prophecies in the first segment of Isaiah. In Isaiah 1, chapter 1 through Isaiah chapter 12, we get three of these. I preached on one of them in the middle of this summer in July. In Isaiah chapter 7, we get the prophecy that God will give a sign to the disobedient, unfaithful Ahaz, nevertheless, and here's the sign that is going to come. It's a judgment on Ahaz, but it's our promise of Christmas and ultimate redemption. The virgin shall give birth, shall conceive and give birth. She will bear a son. That's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Then we move on to the one we're highlighting today, which moves all the way through the great early vision of the exalted Zion in chapter 12, Isaiah chapter 11. The shoot and root and fruit from the stump of Jesse. And then the middle one to which we'll turn in about three Sundays and carry all the way through Christmas and beyond, Isaiah chapter 9, which includes a whole lot of prophecy, but you'll remember the high points at verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of this kingdom and of his peace, there will be no end. That's um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Today, we're turning to the third of that little trio, Isaiah 11, and we'll come back to it and continue uh, to read through Isaiah 11 in a couple Sundays. Today, though, I want to frame this as we turn to this passage of Scripture, understanding that our sermon today, where we're going to go with our message today, deals with this. Number one, our problem. Our problem. And our problem, to give you a preview, is going to be that we're all stumps. And we're in a world full of stumps without life. That's our problem. Secondly, we're going to turn to God's promise in the face of our problem. God's promise of a coming king. Third, we'll look at the king's power and purpose because his power is intricately related to his purpose. We're going to see that in God's scripture here from Isaiah 11, the opening verses. And then finally, fourth, we'll turn to the king's power for and even in us, the king's power for and even in us. So now let's turn to, I'm going to begin with the final verses of Isaiah chapter 10. After God has prophesied that his agent, his tool of justice and judgment on an entire sector of the world, including his unfaithful chosen people, Israel and even Judah, the empire of Assyria is just a tool. Assyria thinks it's the boss dog, thinks it's in charge, but God says, you're just an ax in my hand. You're just a rod in my hand. And I'm gonna turn around and cut you down after you've served my purposes. And you're not coming back, Assyria. You're going out. Saddam Hussein could have wished all he wanted to, for the resurrection of Assyria and empire. It is not happening, God says, you're out. And God's talking about cutting down trees and leaving stumps all around. The proud will be brought low and be mere stumps. So at the end of this prophecy that, look, Assyria is under my control. They're bringing judgment on my people, but they're going to go down. The next one, Babylon, will go down. All the other empires will go down. God says this. This is the closing verses 
about the proud being brought low. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, and then the opening of Isaiah 11. Hear now God's word. Behold, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of the heavenly armies, the heavenly troops, the Lord God of hosts, will lop off the bowels with terrifying power. The great in height, and other people who think they're so strong, the nations that think they're so strong, the great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. In other words, by God and God's servant. And now, chapter 11, the first five verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity in favor of the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath or the spirit of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Great I am statement of Jesus proclamation here at the close of the Bible. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. We live in a fallen world, a broken world. I hope I don't have to convince you of that. If you thought it was bad in 1965 when Charlie Brown was struggling, welcome to 2021 heading into 2022. We are in a fallen world of judged fruitless trees. Every empire falls, every nation falls. The Assyrian Empire falls. Babylonian Empire falls. The city of man and man's glory, Babel, Babylon, goes down. Likewise, the British Empire, the French Empire, the American Empire, the United Nations, whatever you want to put your trust in, in these politics in these days, um, is not going to be great. But he's great. In fact, What God says is even God's own chosen people, he, when they are faithless, over and over again, generation after generation, cut them down. 
First, he cut down Samaria, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, with all their idolatry. Shouldn't be that big of a surprise after Ahab and Jezebel and the rest of them, right? But then God also brings judgment and warning, final warnings to Judah and Jerusalem with the Assyrian Empire. Now, God saves saves Jerusalem, but the rest of Judah goes down to Assyria, and the southern kingdom is under, and the line of David is under Assyrian dominance all the way up to when they're under Babylonian dominance and finally get chopped down. But God's already said, even his own people, even the tree of his chosen family within the larger family of Abraham, he's chopping down. When Ahaz was unfaithful and looked to the Babylonians for his deliverance, you know, we read about this back in chapter 7 of Isaiah, when Ahaz refuses the opportunity, the offer to be given a sign by God to ask anything he wants, and Ahaz says, no, 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 I, I'm not going to put the Lord to, to the test. He's just being bogus. This is what Ahaz does. God says, okay, nevertheless, I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, the young maiden virgin, shall conceive and give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. But you understand, with that prophecy, God is saying, I'm cutting the line of David down to a stump. The Davidic line, the one through whom the Messiah is going to come, I'm cutting down to a stump. Well, what are you going to do, God? I mean, we are in desperate situation when even the line of the Messiah, I mean, God's guy that, you know, the man after God's own heart and his line, his descendants, his grandchildren, great-grandson, great-great-great-great-grandsons, when they've been unfaithful, and even one of the faithful ones, like Hezekiah, Josiah, God says it's not enough. We're not going to be saved by them. And God knows it. And they've been unfaithful. So just like God said to Ahaz, I'm cutting you down to a stump. Sure enough, it happened. And for centuries, there's no king, no Davidic king in Jerusalem. What are we going to do? Can you imagine if... Uh, a father or mother nowadays took their children out into a field. I, I used to go out and we would cut down a Christmas tree. And can you imagine if I didn't bring home the, the main green part of the tree, but just brought home, dug up the stump and brought it home? Would that be fun for your children? This is our Christmas this year. No presents around it. Just kind of a dead, fruitless stump. And every year and so on, and your children grow up and they have children. And every generation, generation after every generation, this is our Christmas. This dead-looking stump here. That's all we got. No presents, no greenery, no nothing. Doesn't sound good, does it? But that's what went on for centuries, and here's this promise from God. So from our problem, which I want us all to come into this Advent season acknowledging, without God, you're a dead, fruitless stump. Your family, your line, is a stump. And fruitless without God. That's the truth. God's own chosen people can be a mere fruitless stump, and God can judge his people. That's the opening that leads us into Isaiah 11. Admit it. Confess it to God. You're dead without God, and you have nothing to give your children or the generations to come. Oh, you can try to dress up a dead stump. 
and put some makeup on it and some decorations. But it's decaying and dead. That's our problem. But now hear the promise. God's amazing promise in response to our problem, to the line of David's problem, to Judah's problem, to Israel's problem, to all those who will turn to him. This is an amazing promise. The promise of the coming king. How's he going to come? This is one of the most remarkable prophecies in all the Bible. Now, I know I keep telling you that about every page we turn to in Isaiah, but this one is amazing. Understand what God is saying through Isaiah over 700 years before Jesus comes. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, that by itself would be amazing, right? Somehow, in the line of David, a baby's going to be born, a king is going to come, even though we know they haven't had power for centuries. Okay, Isaiah's already seen all this through. But then hear what God is saying. And from his roots, from Jesse's roots, shall spring up a fruitful branch. Okay, let's, let's step back and understand what's being said here. Most of the time in the Bible, when you're talking about the Messianic line, you're talking about the Davidic line, the line of David. You're talking about the line of David, the chosen one, the anointed king, the man after God's own heart. You're talking about David. Why are we talking about Jesse? Jesse is David's father. Compute on this. You have to understand this. The one who is coming is going to be infinitely greater than David. We need a greater David as our Messiah, as our Savior. Number one. Number two, hear this. He is a shoot from the line. So physically, humanly speaking, he's going to be born in the line of Jesse and David. But he's also from somewhere down in the roots. The roots are the source of Jesse. Wait a minute, because we know the way this story works, right? Jesus is born over a thousand years after David, and you're telling me he comes before David and is somehow the source of Jesse? Well, wait a minute, that would have to mean either he's really, you know, ancient, or we got some kind of reincarnation going, no, we're not talking about that, the Bible says no on that. Or he's God. Voila. The shoot, baby Jesus, and the root, the eternal son of God. God just told you all that in Isaiah 11, verse 1. And he's going to bear fruit. Everyone who's connected with him will bear fruit. That's the promise. The greater than David Messiah is going to come. The coming king is the source of Jesse and the source of David. So that's what Jesus is talking about. In, for instance, Revelation chapter 22. I am the root and the descendant of David. Jesus, how, how can you say that? How can you be both of those at the same time? You're, you're the descendant of David, but you're also the root? Exactly. Fully human, fully God. The one mediator between people 
and God, the one real Savior. God himself come to us as one of us in the physical biological line of David. And the coming king will redeem stumps and give life. Isn't that awesome? So that's God's promise of the coming king. The shoot and root and fruit of Jesse. Which brings us to number three, the king's power. In other words, as you can see in your notes that I have for you on the sermon today, God's spirit. The king's power, God's spirit, which leads into the spirit given to him for his purpose as the king, redemption, judgment, and fruit. New life, new creation, new kingdom. Now, let's pull back and understand the, the power of what's being said here. The fullness of God's spirit will rest upon him. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Remember, yes, Jesus is the son of God, but yes, also, as the scripture says, Philippians chapter two, for instance, he's emptying himself. He's humbling himself. He's condescending to come and be one of us to be our savior. So the spirit is key to him fulfilling what we're supposed to be as human beings. He must have the spirit. Is the spirit the Lord? Is the Lord the spirit, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians? Yes, absolutely. But Jesus has emptied himself, born as a shoot from Jesse. And so we get in verse 2 and following of Isaiah 11, the promise here of his power. Now understand, every single king in the line of David was anointed with oil. But this king, this coming one, this one who is far greater, infinitely greater than David, will be anointed with the Holy Spirit and with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, uh, various people who serve God's purposes are endowed and endued, sometimes temporarily, sometimes longstanding, with aspects of the Spirit of God. For instance, Isaiah and other prophets have the spirit of prophecy. Joshua, we read in the Old Testament, and Joshua is endowed through Moses with the spirit of wisdom. Jesus will be endowed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit that will rest upon him. In other words, be in full communion with him. There's nobody else like that talked about in the Old Testament. Moses has aspects, aspects of the Holy Spirit upon him. And when he calls and ordains the 70 elders, in Numbers we read that a portion, God applies a portion of the Spirit that he's given, which is a portion itself, from Moses to the elders, and it rests upon them temporarily. And they prophesy for a little while, but then they can't do it anymore. That's the level we're operating at in the Old Testament. Now, all of a sudden, we get the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God on Jesus. If you've read Revelation, you may remember, it can be a little bit confusing. We talk, the Holy Spirit is one, right? But in Revelation, we also read about the seven spirits of God. What's that talking about? It's talking about the full play Rama, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
And where's the seven coming from? Well, of course, you know, seven is a number for God's intersection with creation, right? That's the, the special number for God, the three intersecting with the four and the seven. But notice where the seven occurs. Isaiah 11. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The full Spirit of the Lord, number one. Two and three, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Four and five, the Spirit of counsel and might. In other words, he will have the plan and he will have the power to fulfill it. Counsel and might. He's the real king. And six and seven, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's the seven. That's the fullness. And it rests upon him. In other words, it abides with him. It lives with him. Will rest upon the king. Isaiah 42, 1, first of the servant songs. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit, and this means the whole, upon him. And he will bring forth justice, there's his purpose, to the nations. Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And what happens when Jesus is baptized? Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 tells us this. The spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove and did what? Rested upon him. Did you hear that? Rested upon him. Isaiah 11, 2. What does John testify? John the baptizer. We read this in the first chapter of John's gospel, John the apostle's gospel. John the Baptist testifies, here's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I know this now because when I baptized him, the spirit descended upon him and did what? Rested upon him. That's who Jesus is. The king's power, his spirit, the fullness of God's spirit resting upon him and bringing forth him in full power, in counsel and might, in wisdom and discernment, in knowledge and in the reverence for the Lord, fear of the Lord. His delight. Now, the verb there means like the scent. You get it back when Noah offers an offering to God in Genesis chapter 8, and the scent is pleasing to God. In other words, Jesus is so discerning that he knows who fears the Lord. And all who fear the Lord, who are reverent for the Lord, are pleasing in his sight. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he will judge according to that, not by what the eyes of flesh see. He knows what's in man's heart. He knows, and he judges. So that, that's the full power. It's an awesome king, isn't he? He's an awesome king. And, and God's already telling us in Isaiah 11, this is who this is. This is who my son is. This is who your savior is, which brings us to the, the further prophecy that he will bring fruit because you know what? The branches coming forth from him will be very fruitful. Remember this, Jesus says this before he dies, John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you're in me, if you abide in me, if you live in me, you'll bear much fruit. 
So this brings us to where we are. God's dealing with our problem, our stumpness, with the promise of the shoot and the root, the Savior, the coming King, who comes in the fullness of God's Holy Spirit to bring justice and to judge rightly and to make all things right, first coming and second coming. He's going to execute all this in his second coming. He's prepared it in his first coming. So where does that leave us in between? You know what? We're called to bear fruit, and we can. Don't be intimidated by this. Be set free in this, because his spirit is for us and in us that we might bear fruit. The king's power in and for us brings salvation, the spirit, and spiritual fruit in us. He saves us in his spirit, and he gives us his spirit. He gives you his spirit that you might be changed from the inside out and be right and righteous before God. Not a righteousness that comes from your effort, but by God and yielding to God working in you. John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We'll have the Holy Spirit forever. That's what salvation is, to be set free in the Holy Spirit. And listen to this, 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Wow. And Jesus comes to save and to judge for the poor and the meek. And what do we read in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Isaiah 11, Beatitudes, right? And then look. And blessed are you when you're persecuted. And people say all kinds of bad things against you and revile you because of my name. You're blessed. And here it is, 1 Peter 4. You know why? Because the Spirit rests upon you and abides with you forever. God promises, and we read this in the prophecy of Isaiah 59, to his people through the servant, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, the servant, or out of the mouth of your offspring. In other words, all of us, right? We have the spirit. God gives us the spirit. We're set free to be different makers in this community, in the world, in the power of his spirit. Live in that. As you come and receive from his table today, know that you are one with Christ the Lord the one who is the promised king, the one who is above all, and by his grace is in all who believe in him, now and forever, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.